Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Romans. We, are, we will be in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Romans is just after the book of Acts. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, the book of Romans. Look for the big number 6. And we will begin in verse 1. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. This is what Holy Scripture says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? 
for the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take your Bibles, if you would, and open to Romans chapter 6. Book of Romans chapter 6. Canada Day is not today. Canada Day is on July 1st. It's a holiday, a special day on the calendar when we celebrate becoming a nation. Maybe you wave a little Canadian flag, maybe you even sing the Canadian national anthem. But wouldn't it be very strange, having celebrated Canada Day on July 1st, if on July 2nd, we adapted or adopted all the laws and customs of Saudi Arabia. It would be fair to ask us, didn't July 1st mean anything to you? Today is Easter Day, Resurrection Sunday. To celebrate the resurrection today and then to live the rest of our year like it never happened would make us inconsistent at best and treacherous hypocrites at worst. It would certainly call into question what we really believe. The fact is, for the Christian, every day is resurrection day. We don't need a day on the calendar to rejoice in the Christ. In fact, until a Christian fully understands this, everything will be off in their life. I know this for certain because of what Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapters 5 and 6. God will settle for nothing less than your life being completely transformed after he saves you from your sins. And Paul blesses, or rather bases, all of this on the fact of Christ's resurrection. It is like God is looking you square in the face this morning on this Easter Sunday and asking you, Easter? So what? So what, Christian? So what? Do you really believe he rose from the dead? Then you will certainly live in a specific way. If not, 
You're like the man who celebrates Canada Day and lives like a Saudi Arabian. It makes no sense. It calls into question your true citizenship, what you really believe. So let's look at Romans and see what Paul says. Patrick read for us from beginning in chapter 6, verse 1. I'm going to back you up a couple of verses into chapter 5 and verse 20 just to set the table. The first thing I want you to see is this. Before God saved us, all we could do was sin. Before God saved you, all you could do was sin. How do I know this? Romans 5, verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, just a very quick summary of what Paul is saying here. He is saying God gave the law, summarized in the 10 words, the 10 commandments, and commandments like do not covet. Those commandments had only one effect on people who were not saved. They highlighted our failure. We heard do not covet and we thought, what can I covet? Or we heard do not covet and we thought, I covet all the time. What is coveting? It's to want what somebody else has for yourself. So in this sense, the law, do not covet, functioned to increase our guilt. God, by revealing his own righteousness, shows us how sinful we are. He tells us do not covet and we covet, therefore guilt increases. So the law functioned like a speed limit in a residential neighborhood. Once that sign goes up saying 30 kilometers an hour maximum, every kilometer over that is an infraction. And in this way, sin reigned in our lives. Apart from God, all you did was stained by sin and you had no internal way to not sin until Jesus Christ saved you. And at that moment, your relationship to sin changed radically. Where sin dominated, grace beat it. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Number two. First thing, before God saved us, all we could do was sin. Number two, after God saves us, we are finally free to not sin. Now, Paul makes this perfectly clear in Romans 6 with one of the best questions asked in your Bible. Look at verse 1. What shall we say then? That's not the best question. <laughs> the best question comes next. <laughs> are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So, Back to chapter 5, verse 20. Since grace superabounded where sin abounded, shouldn't we just keep sinning in this world so that the world can see more grace? That's the same as your 10-year-old asking you as you climb up the muddy riverbank of the Niagara River holding your toddler in your arms, your little 10-year-old looking at you and saying, shouldn't I push my little brother down there again so the world can see what a great hero you are, mom? 
And you would answer that 10-year-old the way Paul answers us, may it never be, may ganoito. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And here is where we Christians have to pause and think. Everything hinges on this. How can you who died to sin still sin? There are two dangers that always exist in gospel preaching churches. Two ditches on either side of the gospel path. On one side is the ditch gumption and on the other side is the ditch presumption. In the ditch gumption, when we sin and feel bad about it, we think, I've got to try harder, I've got to bear down, I've got to work, 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 work in order to please God and keep my salvation. And in ditch presumption, we sin, we feel bad, and we think, well, Christ died for my sins and he was raised. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. It's not that big a deal. It's okay to sin a little bit. Nobody's perfect after all. Gumption and presumption are deceptive ditches because they're actually canals that lead to an ocean called hell where souls live tormented forever. Even souls that thought they were good with God. So my dear brothers and sisters, this sermon is your come to Jesus moment. I'm preaching this sermon for the members of Grace Fellowship Church. And I have picked this particular Sunday to do so because I cannot stomach our collective hypocrisy if we're to dress up and smile and eat nice dinners and say he is risen while spending most of our lives acting like he is dead. He is risen. So what? If the fact of his bodily resurrection is not radically altering how you live, then I fear for your soul. Are you playing with mud pies in ditch presumption? I think too many of us are. I'm hearing too many members of this church saying things like, I know I should love that other person, but... Brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm out this morning on this Easter 2023 to obliterate the but in that sentence. There are no buts when God commands. Have you settled that fact with him? Have you come to a place in your heart where you look to God and say, no matter what my spouse or my roommate or my boss or my neighbor says or does, I'm going to do what you tell me to do, God. Friend, you will never love your enemies, be the servant of all, or die to yourself until you have resolved to follow God at all cost. That is the very heart of what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of the risen Christ. 
And the answer to my sermon is not to climb out of the ditch presumption over into the ditch gumption to move from sigh to try, from self-assured to works assured. My goal is to call you back to the gospel path and that begins with reminding yourself who you are in Christ, of thinking about yourself correctly. Real change in the Christian life begins in the mind, not the muscles. This takes me to number three. You are alive and free. You were dead in your sins. You were slaves of sins. You were born into it. You could do nothing to get yourself out of it. But then God graciously invaded your life. He saved you. He made you one with Christ and you were baptized as a sign to you and to all that you are one with Jesus now. Look at verse three. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, for this reason, for this purpose, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Are you eating what God is cooking? Are you walking in newness of life? Jesus Christ died in your place. It is as if you died with him. That's what Paul says. You were buried with him in his death. And if that is true, what came next for Jesus is true for you as well. You were raised from the dead with him. I have sat and held the hands of the dying. And I can tell you that a moment comes when it is clear. This person is no longer alive. There is nothing else to do now. They're gone. A permanent separation occurs, the soul from the body. Friend, if you are a Christian, you are dead to sin. A permanent separation has occurred. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I mean, sure, at times we feel like sin is very much alive and screaming in our faces to be indulged, but the reality is, the truth is, you are dead to it. It has no power over you. Maybe sin feels very strong and enticing, necessary even, because you're failing to consider that you have been raised with Christ. You are a new you. Just as Christ was raised from the dead on that very first Easter morning, if you are positionally welded to Jesus, then look at what the text says. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus was the same but different after the resurrection. They could recognize him, but it was a, he was an under sin, and like, he, was, he was a new man. He was resurrected. Paul says, that's true for us. After Christ, after we've been born again, 
We walk in newness of life. Walk, you know that word. It's a Bible word. It means your conduct, your behavior. Christ was resurrected so that you would behave, you would live, you would walk, you would conduct yourself in a newness of life. You used to walk in the deadness of sin. No more with that. Now, to be a Christian means you live a different way. If your friends and your neighbors or your mirror concludes that you live just like everybody else in the world, only two things are possible. Number one, you're a horribly sinning Christian. Number two, you're not a Christian. There's there's no in-between options here. Justification does not grant you diplomatic immunity with God. Get away with murder. The best lies always contain a grain of truth. That's a lie. Diplomatic immunity with God. Oh, you're saved. But that doesn't mean you get to live as you please. Or worse, sin as you please. Being a Christian means you are dead to sin. There are no true Christians who are not dead to sin. Therefore, if you're abiding in sin, if you're, if you're resigning yourself to just carry on in sin, that's just what my life is going to be. If that's you, I doubt you are a true Christian. If, if that's you, read the entire book of Hebrews. It's, it's in the book for that reason, to warn you that if you're giving yourself over to it, if you're just resigning yourself to sin, saying, oh, this is my life, I'm just going to sin, I'm going to have this little pocket of sin in my life, then read the book of Hebrews, which warns you, you, friend, might be self-deceived and on your way to hell. But if you're a Christian, if you've come all the way to Jesus by faith, then his death His burial, his resurrection are your death, your burial, your resurrection. Sin's power has been rendered inoperative even when sin's presence never leaves. My dear brothers and sisters, are you pushing people down the banks of the Niagara and wondering why your heavenly father is not pleased with you? If God saved you, it was so that you might live free and alive in this life, not just the next. You're dead to sin, and you're to live a new kind of life. Number four, you must think and act like you're alive and free. You got to know it, but you got to act upon it too. Imagine a man receiving a letter in the mail from an Ottawa lawyer that says, "Uh, Dear sir, you're the sole heir to a massive estate on the Rideau Canal, Not only that, the estate comes with millions and millions of dollars of accessible cash. There's cars, there's offshore bank accounts, all of it. And all the proof and verification is right here. We've got it. We just need you to come to Ottawa and claim it. And that young man says, the playoffs are on. I don't want to miss a game. Besides that, I, I, I bought a lottery ticket for the Princess Margaret Hospitals and I might win a house. You would look that young man in the eye and say, you're an idiot. And you'd be right. 
Just because something is a positional reality does not mean it's an experiential reality. Just because the resurrection is true doesn't mean you're living in light of the resurrection. That's why Paul goes on in verse 5 to say this. For, he's explaining something, if we have been united with him in a death like his, which we have, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, who I was before I was a Christian, that's all that means. The old self was crucified with him. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Look at verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Positional reality must be made experiential reality. You must consider, you must reckon, you must think, ponder, consider, determine yourself to be in a state of being dead to sin and living to God. The change of behavior that Paul is calling for begins with a change of mind. And that's why I'm trying to preach a very uncomfortable sermon on Easter because I'm trying to change your mind. But I'm not trying to persuade you to some opinion of mine. I'm trying to persuade you to what the book says. This is not a matter, friends, of preference, nor is it a matter of, well, the really good Christians live this way and I'll just kind of skirt in over here. No, this is truth life, death kind of stuff. If you have not settled it in your heart that you're going to obey Jesus no matter what, no matter, no matter what your husband hasn't done, no matter what your wife says, no matter what your boss implies, no matter what your neighbor steals, no matter what your television package happens to offer, then can you really say, I'm a follower of Jesus? Maybe you're visiting with us today. Thank you for being with us. We are glad you are here. But I would just note to you the same thing I'm telling all the Christians who are here, which is this. this. This is what it means to follow Jesus. I hope you turn from your sins and repent and believe on him. But you ought to count the cost because he, he wants your whole life. And a lot of us knew that at the front end. And then got a little comfortable with sins. And got hearts that were calloused to sin. And minds that were foggy to sin. And we're living our lives like it don't really matter that much. Jesus says, repent and believe. In other words, the solution for all of us, every person in this room, is come to Jesus. 
God saved you, then look at verse 11. Here's what you are to do. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you also. That means you. You must, not should, not could, not should try, but this is divine necessity. You must consider yourselves, reckon yourself, conceive of yourself as dead. Not mostly dead, not sick to sin, not mostly dead to sin, completely dead, separated from sin. You must reckon yourselves dead to all the actions that God forbids and alive as in not dead, but thriving, living, enabled to God, your heavenly Father, the one who saved you in Christ Jesus, the one with whom you've died, been buried, and raised. Christian brother or sister, your obedience to God must depend on the obedience of Christ, not the obedience of your spouse. The heart of what I'm trying to get at is this. Too much in our lives we're looking at another person and saying, until that person acts like a Christian toward me, I'm not going to act like a Christian toward them. Repent. Your obedience to God must depend on the obedience of Christ, not the obedience of your spouse or your boss or whoever. Consider the active obedience of Jesus. He lived the perfect life you could never live and thereby fulfilled all righteousness. And he gifts this righteousness to you the moment you are saved, which results in your freedom to not sin. And then consider the passive obedience of Christ where he's allowing himself to be crucified on your behalf, taking all your sin and guilt upon himself on that cross. And then God raises him from the grave, which results in your ability to not sin. His obedience not only demands, but it enables our obedience. And anything less than a full commitment to do what Jesus says is to really kick dirt on the cross. Which takes me to number five. You must refuse to believe you ever have to sin. You just got to refuse to believe you have to sin. Imagine with me a soldier in a very strange war. In this war, only one side fires weapons, his side. His enemy refuses to fire back and yet never loses ground. In fact, when some of his co-soldiers are captured and then returned, there's whispers of being fed and cared for by the enemy. Meanwhile, his life is miserable always slugging it out in the filthy trenches, undersupplied, malnourished, under the command of a fierce commander, one who always promises days of peace and sunshine but never delivers it. One day that wicked commander calls on him to leave his trench, advance on the enemy, and he does, only he's captured. The whispers he heard were true. The enemy treated him with kindness, bathed his wounds, gave him fresh new clothes to wear, and even more, invited him to defect, to join their side. He was given an interview with the general. That general showed the soldier the new life he could have, all the general had done to secure his release. And the soldier looked at it, and he did it. He defected. 
became a soldier in the new army. Life was so different now. Oh, there were, there were still orders to follow, but lots of fellow soldiers around to coach and to help. And there was still work to do, but he was well-fed and rested and fully equipped to do everything that was asked of him. Instead of trying to deliver death and carnage, his new mission was to care for those who attacked and tell them of the good life on the other side in the new army. He was thrilled with his new life. But as the days of warfare dragged on, he found his heart getting a little nostalgic for the sound of cannons and the smell of gunpowder. He didn't mention this to any of his new comrades, but continued to do good to his attackers. But even as he did, he found himself a little bit envious of their weapons and ways. One day as he marched out to do good, he heard the voice of that old commander. A filthy and fierce man struck fear into the bravest of souls. And the voice of that commander kept getting louder and louder until the soldier could see his former tyrant over the cusp of the hill and their eyes locked. The evil commander looked him dead in the eye, screamed at him to get back, and horribly that's precisely what the soldier did. He dropped his medical gear, his food supplies, picked up a weapon from the dead around him, and soon he was firing away at all the troops of the kind general who had rescued him. At first, the, the power of the weapon, the smells of war were joy to his senses until he caught sight of the very general he had just betrayed. Then he was sick to his stomach. What have I done, he thought. His kind-hearted general seemed to be looking into his very soul, and in an instant, he dropped the weapons and ran to the general. The vile commander behind him is screaming at him to come back, and when the soldier refused, that vile commander aimed all his artillery and, fire, and firepower at the fleeing soldier. Yet somehow that man escaped and fell at the feet of his general. The general looked down at him and said, why did you leave? And the soldier had no good answer. Finally, he looked up and said, I heard the sound of my old master. And I saw his old ways, and for some reason, they looked good to me. I was a fool. There was no reason to go back. All I want is to be with you. Please forgive me. The general smiled. Not the broad smile of a man laughing at a joke, but a knowing smile of one who knew what this was going to cost. And then he said, come back, my son. And with that, the general turned and put himself between the soldier and the fury of the enemy's fire. And thus my story ends. But I have told you that story to ask you a question. First a Bible verse, then the question. Verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, 
but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. The word instrument, used twice in that verse, can also be translated weapon. A weapon for righteousness, a weapon for unrighteousness. Notice the word in that verse, present. Christ presented himself to his disciples after his resurrection. Paul was presented before Felix. In each case, they stood before others ready to do what the situation required. To whom then, Christian, are you presenting yourself? Are you presenting yourself to Christ to be a weapon of righteousness in this spiritual war? Or are you presenting yourself to your old master, Satan, to be a weapon of disobedience which leads to death? Are you an instrument in the hands of the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts? Or are you an instrument in the hands of the Lord of demons, the Lord of the fly? Look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as, as weapons for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Paul is saying, because you are justified, you must live sanctified. Or to use our little story, what on earth are you doing listening to the devil and going back to his army? You've been bought with a price. Paul then moves from the analogy of a soldier to that of a slave. Why are you running back to your old slave master when you've been fully and finally set free? Look at verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you, here it is again, present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Every single day, every single hour of every single day, you are presenting yourself. Are you a soldier of Christ or are you a soldier of the enemy? Are you a slave of righteousness or are you a slave of sin? The heart of Paul's argument, friends, lies with you. You're the one doing the presenting. I can't present you. You can't present the people you love. You can only present yourself. Are you presenting yourself to God or are you presenting yourself to the enemy? Consider the lengths you went to before you were Christians in order to sin. Think of all the planning and scheming and expense and energy you expended in order to sin. Will you determine to use the same amount of energy and devotion to follow God? Will you pursue God as hard as you pursued sin? Verse 4 again, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You were not saved to fight for the enemy. 
You were not made a servant of Christ to do the bidding of Satan. If you are a Christian, you are united with him in his death and burial. You are raised with him to walk in newness of life. Your old you was crucified with him. You are no longer enslaved to sin. You are set free from sin. In fact, you are dead to sin, alive to God in Christ, a weapon of righteousness armed and empowered by grace, a willing and happy slave to righteousness. So if you're looking at your spouse and you're looking at your Bible, where your Bible tells you to do things like love one another, with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Be patient in tribulation. Live in harmony with one another. Repay no one evil for evil. You're looking at your Bible and reading that, and you're looking at your spouse and seeing the conflict you're in, and your solution is to go, nah. Really? Really? If that's you, how dare you say Jesus Christ rose from the dead? If he says be constant in prayer and you think I'll just stress about things. If he says love your enemies and you say I'm going to take Twitter vengeance. If he says pray for your leaders and you say I'm going to use my socials to curse them. If he says love your wife and you say I'm going to love my job. If he says submit to your husband and you say I'll only submit once he changes or worse. If you've been reading verses like these and giving these same responses for weeks, months, even years, then I'm not sure you can safely call your yourself a Christian. The very essence of what it means to follow Jesus was summed up by Jesus just a few days before his resurrection. This is what he said, and he said it to all. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. You know what saving your life is? Saving your life is saying, my spouse, I know what I'm supposed to do, but nah, I'm going to save my life. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses my, his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. Friend, if he rose and you are his, then present yourself to him and say this today. Whatever you want, whatever you say, with whoever you tell me, now and always. And then when Easter comes and somebody says, he has risen, you don't have to answer with, who cares? you can say, 
He's risen indeed. And he's making me live like a person who's died to sin and is alive to God. Does your life show that? Are you fighting for the enemy? Jesus is always standing ready to take you back. Not via the canals on either side of the gospel path. You don't get back by gumption or presumption. But by the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. He died for us so that those who live, you and me, might no longer live for themselves but for him who died and was raised for their sake. Christ rose from the dead so you could say no to sin. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. For the joy he has secured for you, what can you endure? Have you resisted to the point of shedding blood? By his grace, you can. But it begins, my brothers, it begins, my sisters, by looking him in the eye and settling the matter here. For as much as it depends on me, for as much as I can, I will always seek to do what you told me to do right here, even, even when this makes no sense to me. I will do it. Even when they mock me for it, I'll do it. That's what it means to serve a resurrected Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we're about to sing these remarkable words of Wesley. The reign of sin and death is over. Now men may live from sin set free. I pray we can sing that with all of our hearts, that because of the finished work of Jesus, it is our intention to follow you at all costs. We're grateful for the gospel. We're grateful that we can confess sins and failings and be restored. Oh, God, keep us out of that ditch presumption. Oh, forgive us. Forgive us as a church for when we have thought we could just put up with sins and tolerate them in our lives, under our, the roofs of our homes, maybe where nobody sees. Please forgive us and restore us and keep us from that ditch gumption Put us on the gospel path, not to earn our salvation, but to be weapons for righteousness for Jesus' sake, our resurrected Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.